Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen and ladies, welcome to the comics table. Welcome to the comics table. I'm Sweet T. And I'm Sweet P, a.k.a. Patrick Holbert, a.k.a. Tristan Theodore Roosevelt Smith. Yep. The third. You are Esquire. the uh, the 32nd president of the United States. That's right. Um, riding my horse. Hunting, yeah, yeah, hunting yeah. bulls. You, you are a trapper, a hunter. You like a pelt. You're, you're a guy who likes his pelts. I have a, uh, I have a big uh, blanket. It's a furry, fuzzy blanket. Yeah, it's like, a, it's like an animal hide. You tried I, to like, give me that one uh, blouse, that raccoon blouse, but I was allergic. Right, uh, and I also try to fuck you with that sheepskin condom. Yeah, I was allergic to that too, but uh, the benefits were worth it. They're all worth it. People really weren't. Making love with sheepskin condoms, weren't they? They still do. Some people are allergic to latex. Yeah, but actually, they just we live make in the, a ur- urethane. Condom we live in the, the, the the millennial age where people just fuck bareback now. That's that's the way they do it. Because they're just like, you know what? I got the I got the vaccine for the HPV, and otherwise, I'll just take my risks. Uh, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in quite some time. I know it's been like a. Thirty seconds. It's been I guess. four and a half minutes since Katie left the room. Yeah, uh, we love doing these back to backs, guys. Yeah, because uh, around uh, the half hour mark of the second episode, we both we take a nap right. and then we just ask our guests to do a like a set. Right, uh, they do their own material. It's all up to you. Uh huh. And uh, and there's no laugh responses or anything. So. No, Patrick, that shirt is something else, buddy. This is a four-year-old shirt. You've got a shirt that a four-year-old Patrick would wear. Patrick has got a, a green and and like a. I don't even know if that's blue. It's like a purplish bluey. It's just like a faded green and blue checkered shirt. It is faded by the laundry. Is right. it terrible? Should I just get rid of it? No, nah, it's it's fine. I feel like the pits are crusting up in a weird way. Yeah. Do you just have like the the shirts that like always smell of your uh, pits? I, I'm sure they're in there, but I've grown to appreciate my own brand and my body, and I'm not going to be body shamed you by know what? Like, this I, line of questioning. I, I got to be honest. I was talking to somebody about this. I don't mind body odor that much if it's in a reasonable amount. Like sometimes it almost, some people's body odor almost smells delicious. Oh, like I they, like it. Yeah. They smell like a deli sandwich yeah. I want to eat or something like that. Yeah. Like especially women, like I want, I want a woman to like stuff her panties in my face or, well, or like a make whole me like a different ball of wax or right make there. me like sniff their armpit. Like my wife has very hairy arms pits and they are, are wonderful i love the way they smell gross i, I also love your wife's armpits <laughs> thank you mike hey who's that Patrick? ladies and gents we've got the wonderful mike kaplan, mike kaplan. in the house Thanks. He, he was Thanks. like i'm not gonna keep listening to this bullshit much longer no i could no i was just i couldn't keep quiet about a topic that is near and dear to my my heart yeah. and your wife's heart her yeah. armpit right there yeah. next to her heart well you're actually you're actually probably smelling it coming off of me right now because love i it. did spend the morning with her so uh it's it's all over do you know what i am um, i um this is completely, uh, I don't care what anybody thinks, but uh, I thought a lot about like women's body here because I'm a man who likes to have sex with uh, uh, females. Yeah. And uh, uh, I actually dated a girl, I think for maybe six months, who didn't shave anything. And yeah. um, What about the legs? She didn't shave her legs. That's she part of sh- everything. Yeah, right, she right, didn't that, shave her yeah. legs, she didn't shave her armpits, any of that stuff. And it was fine. But like I've, like for myself, like, preferredly i think i like a woman that's fully that's got the shaving going on because i for me it it seems more feminine now i'm certainly not gonna put my 
my preferences on anybody else and what they do with their body by any stretch. Yeah. But I mean like some women like men who shave their face and some women like all the three guys that are sitting around here with facial hair. So yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got a different preference for what they like. Yeah. I I've come to really like the armpit hair leg hair. I like a stubble on a woman. I don't. I don't think I would enjoy long leg hair. I like the way you said. I like a stubble. Yeah, yeah. Just you know, one and, stubble. And this is very. This is very Oedipal, but it reminds me of my mom. Uh, it, it's a direct correlation to you like being a child wearing my mom's uh, shoes and feeling my mom's legs because uh, she's very busy. My mom like babysat all the neighborhood kids. She was running around. She was raising three of us. Right. So she wasn't shaving her legs as often and, as and a full bush. Uh, does that also remind you of your mom? When uh, you, still, you know, like, I, don't, her bush? I don't know what's going on with my mom's bush, but I do remember Eliza's bush. She was my babysitter. The first woman I ever saw naked. She mistakenly came out of the shower while I was in the bathroom. Bad babysitter, by the way, if you're showering. That was just an accident. 30 kids yeah. running around. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, but yeah, huge bush. And yeah, I, I do think I prefer a large bush. Hmm, interesting. Mike, I, I, how about I, you? I think, well, first I want to say that it's very sweet uh, that you, like, that you unabashedly, like, no no shame. And I, I think that's good. Like, that you, you're not, it doesn't seem like you're sexually interested in your mother. No. So no. Th- just the idea, the reference, obviously, you bring up your mother in the context of what you prefer in a woman. Like, sometimes it's about their personality. Sometimes it's about, you know, the way that, you know, you were treated, whether it's a positive thing or a thing that you're like, I like, you know, obviously, we all have things that our mother have gifted us with. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I like, I like that you are, you're like, this is, this is where I can trace that to that. My mother was like this. I like this. I'm glad it's, good. I, I'm glad you're receiving it like that because when I told my wife about it, she was a little creeped out. Yeah, no, that's uh, reasonable. Well, <laughs> apparently you should be married to me. Yeah. Right, let me be, I'll be creepy for a second. Like, so I don't understand where my, my interest in lack of hair comes from, but I do remember when I was like 13 or 14 and this was back when, uh, there was still Barnes and Nobles and shit and, and they would have like porn in the, in the magazine racks, like up in the top yeah. level. And you know, of course it's like a 13, 14 year old boy. Like I'm looking around, nobody's seen me. So I sneak up and I get this penthouse mm-hmm. down. They had, were selling penthouses in the bookstore. Did you layer it inside a sports illustrated? No, I wasn't even that smart about it. I was just kind of like, you I put it in another s- porn magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess there was this particular spread. There were like three women and they were all like, hairless from head to toe like they were even like no hair on their heads like alopecia almost yeah um i think they had eyebrows i'm not sure and uh, so it was kind of it was like a little bit of like lesbian no hair action i think almost came in my pants like looking at this spread uh-huh. like somehow i was like wow this does it for me on a, like a deep level and that, that I was one understand. of your first visceral sexual that wasn't my first to- visceral but that was that was a notable visceral experience that obviously i still remember to this yeah. day just being like holy fuck this just yeah. hits all these buttons for me yeah. i don't you know i don't know because some of the first I- images i saw came from the ernie's automotive dumpster where we found porn mag oh yeah you have that, a whole bit about that yeah right? and they they were like tattooed ladies on motorcycles right, they're like right. smoking i love pictures. tattoos i love yeah. tattoos i don't know i know what that is yeah. i love the suicide girl suicide look. girls Question. even though those girls totally would never like me but yeah. what what do you think so you like tattoos you don't yeah. like hair what if a woman had stubble tattooed <laughs> tattoos stubble of speckled, hair speckled hair so right. it would still feel uh smooth smooth like you like it feeling but it would also look it would be a tattoo i guess it depends what that looks like right be sweet ass leg hair tattoo (laughs) i don't think i would like it because i don't like to be tricked in that way what if she told you she's like i'm gonna take my pants off and it's gonna look like there's hair (laughs) but it's actually could be if you're the kind of person who likes a smooth leg it could be like a really 
I'm not into pranks, but I am, if you're going to do a prank, I like a prank where, here's my only exception, is if you are told what the prank is <laughs> one second later. Right, so, like, right. if you, like, you know, she takes her pants off for the first time, and you're like, oh, and she's like, it's a tattoo. And be like, wow, like, yeah. that would be, that would be exciting for me, not because, I also do like tattoos, I don't care whether or not there is leg hair, but I like not being tricked. That's what I'm into. I, I feel like this conversation is such a, like, a very... Very close approximation of how the too much tuna sketch came to life. Could be. Uh, do you yeah. know? What's, do you know what's fucked up? Uh, I like if a girl uh, has tattoos previously, but if I'm with a girl and uh, she wants to get a tattoo, she wants to get a tattoo. Then I'm like, oh, why? You look, oh, you, you're great why, without. Yeah, don't change. Don't change. Don't change. You're perfect the way you are. You want to control so them? That's a control. <laughs> no, it's not. That's it's a not, territorial. That's it's not. It's not that I want to because I would never. I would never impose that on anybody. Yeah. Um, but that's just my own per inner dialogue, which follow, I don't get. Follow-up question. Would you, if you were dating somebody who had tattoos already, which you previously stated is totally fine by you, that right. you wouldn't say to get rid of them, what if she said, she's like, I think I'm going to get rid of one of my tattoos. Would you be like, don't change? Or would you be like, cool? Yeah, I don't know. Mm. That's a good question. My wife. That's such uh, a that's a, such a very specific scenario. We're really going to get deep down to my kinks, guys. Well, in this particular podcast. Because I honestly believe that you know, scientifically speaking, like we don't. This is all anecdotal, of course, mm -hmm. uh, and we don't know what you would do in that situation because it hasn't happened. We can only do this thought experiment. But you know, if you if the reason that you like a woman to not get a tattoo once you are dating her and she doesn't have one and she thinks she might is that you're like, Oh no, you're perfect the way you are. I right. want you not to change. Like then I think that should, uh, hold in the reverse as well. Sure. A woman with a tattoo, you'd be like, no, don't you're perfect as you are. Right. Stay with all the tattoos. I guess the way I can't that speak I met to you. that because I haven't been in that scenario yeah. yes. ever. But, um, but remember people will change. No, we know what the most important the aspect process. of this conversation is that no one in the world gives a fuck about what I'm into. <laughs> so that's, that's really the most important part of it. I'll also add, uh, I think, uh, as I listen to Dan Savage's podcast. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Savage Lovecast yeah. a lot. I recommend it highly. I actually want to ask you some questions yeah. in that department. I used that's to live right, in later. Seattle. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, he had a Savage Love column in The Stranger, oh. Oh, which is yeah. one of my Still favorites. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I haven't seen The Stranger for years. But, but it's everywhere now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re I read it online every week. And uh, he talks about, you know, he, he's a sex and re relationship yeah. advice yeah, yeah. columnist. And so he gives, it, people sometimes talk to him about kinks. Yeah. And one interesting thing that comes up pretty frequently because people call in they're like is this normal do a lot of people have this like is this bad can i get rid of this and like they just obviously if you have a kink uh it pro you probably can't get rid of it so hopefully it's something that you can you know uh manage if it's something that you know would be harmful right, to right. actually enact if you could fantasize in certain ways that are not harmful or if it's something that's not harmful but it's just a thing that some people might find you know quote weird right if it's like you know like sort of the, the, a foot fetish is sort of like the classic like not at all like so many people have it it's not you know if you don't have it you're like i don't understand why you would have it but people who have it don't understand maybe why they have yeah. it and the, the the point that I'll finally get to is he talks about how trying to figure out where your kinks came from is sort of almost pointless because there are people who love spanking that mm -hmm. are like, I was spanked as a kid and that's why I'm into spanking. But there are people who love spanking that were not spanked as a kid and they're like, I never got spanked and I always wanted to. So I yeah. thought it was that that led me to it. So there's yeah. people with the exact opposite experiences leading them to the same kink. So you, even if you hadn't seen that large bush or even if you hadn't touched your mother's legs in that exact way, you might have been into what you were into yeah, right. even without bringing up your mother. Yeah. yeah. 
And honestly, I, I, you know what? I'm I'm nearly sixty-seven at this point. Yes. Uh, you look good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I still don't really. I don't. I don't think I know what what my kinks are. Mm. Like, I don't think I know what my. Not everybody you know, has. I mean, Patrick's the, getting in touch with his kinks pretty pretty hard. Maybe you just like you just like regular plain old sex. I it could be. I could just be. I mean, I am. You know. I am a baby boomer, uh, so <laughs> I'm just going to make yeah. myself older yeah. every episode. I'm pushing I mean, 97. You did, you did fight in the, the Great War. Yeah. So. I can say, uh, like, I certainly, like, when I, I, I think I had sex with my high school girlfriend uh, when I was 17, and that was, you know, we, we were, I was certainly uh, an inexperienced, like, dumb, like, guy kid you know like yeah. i did i hadn't listened to dan savage at that point i wasn't super i didn't know you know it was just like we we liked doing what we did uh but it was very basic very vanilla yeah, yeah. and then for a long time that was like you know pretty pretty standard i mean eventually i feel like i got you know better with my body and i knew what i was doing but it was still like if people were like what are you into i wasn't like specifically into tying people up or doing this or that i would eventually come to like you know date women who wanted me to like be dominant in certain ways and say certain yeah. things and i hadn't done that up to that point and i actually had one girlfriend who was like i, I was like can you help me like tell me like what kind of things like yeah. and she was like well that'll ruin it right, uh, right, if i right. have to tell you how to Right, which me. is the worst. But yeah. I mean, that's the, that was the thing that then a few years later I did another girl and I was like, she was like, can you dominate me? And I was like, can you can you give me examples? Yeah. And she gave me like a bunch of examples. Yeah. Like, so the first could. girl, her kink was that you were a psychic, right? I mean, I mean, it, it does make like I am so into guys that can read my mind implicitly. How yeah. did you know her voice? Uh, <laughs> sincerely, like I mean, I I'm not in her mind, so I don't know in what way if it would have actually ruined it if she could have guided me in a yeah. certain way. But at that time, like we weren't. We weren't the right people for each other, as it turned out. But this other girl, like, it was great. Like, once I was given, once she was like, you know, kind of hit me, like, here, like this, like, and I would do it, like, lightly at first, and she'd be like, more. And so, like, I don't want to do it too much, obviously. But I'm like, if you want this thing, and then, then, like, she was sort of like the, the first, like, the, the door open, you know, sort of cracking open into like learning what I did like, which is sometimes like I used to not say things at all. I used to, you know, make like obviously sounds or maybe say if you love the person, you love the person. But I wasn't like there wasn't any kind of like role play action. There wasn't any kind of even just like, oh, you like you like that. Like it was it seemed it seemed maybe corny. But eventually when I was like when a girl was like, it really works for me. Then I'm like, oh, then I'll do that. Yeah, because my pleasure. I think you're making the point that like you kind of understand your kinks through the experiences that you have with your partners and i think probably my issue is that not that it's an issue but like i haven't had an excessive amount of partners so i maybe haven't had um uh, a lot of opportunities to uh, explore out of the context of the limited amount of people that i've been with that said also there are people who are kinky who have known what their kinks are like have been tying themselves up since they were three yeah like there are people who like for sure like know it and it can be some people tying themselves up since they were three there i mean people who call into the savage love cast (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, that podcast it really truly is amazing it's i mean Uh, i would say listen if you haven't listened to it listen to it extensively and even if you're not 
not uh, having partners who are introducing kinks into your life. You'll hear about a lot of stuff. And if one of them like, you know, resonates with you again, not everyone gets a kink. Right. Uh, the main objective of our podcast is to like take our 10 listeners and really guide them towards like other other, other podcasts, podcasts that yeah. have a couple million listeners yeah. at this point. You know? yeah. I mean, I you're listening to this and I appreciate it. Thank you, listener. If you have more than one hour in a week to listen to a podcast, I'd say listen to mine first. What's after your this podcast? One. Yeah. It's, it's called Broccoli and Ice Cream. Broccoli and Ice Cream. Are, what's the mix there? What's uh... named at? Name that. I'm glad you asked. Yeah. Uh, no reason at all. Uh, <laughs> just I love broccoli and I'm vegan, so it's one thing I can have and yep. one that I have an mm-hmm. almond or cashew or coconut version of. But uh, the broccoli represents the work of, of people's lives yes. and ice cream represents the joys. So I talk to people about their, their works and what they put into that and their joys and often the intertwining of them. Oh, I you're, love that. You, yeah, you, you're one of the few vegan like people that performed at our show, which is at, at a vegan restaurant. Oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of the time, the people that are there are not actually vegan yeah. in any sense. Um, but you, They are while yeah. they're in that show because <laughs> if they can't bring in outside food and they yeah. have to eat the vegan food that's Boom. there. Which yeah. is, that, I love the V-Spot is delicious. It is delicious. Yeah, they've got great stuff. Uh, you, uh, you killed it on our show. And I love, I've seen you in that room a few times because of Jeff and Teresa have had Mike on, on their show a couple times. Uh I I love watching you on stage because much like on this podcast right now, you are a machine gun with words. I'm a pacifist, uh, so I like to think I'm a machine fun. Please go on. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so yeah, talk talk about your that style. How how soon into your career did that become how you were performing? Uh, and I'd say one answer is that it it was a very gradual thing, and I can't pinpoint exactly where I started doing or when. Mm-hmm. And then the other answer is uh, 2006. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I do feel like a seed was planted in me that year around then for two reasons. One, I'd started out doing comedy in Boston yeah. in 2002-ish, and mo- the style that I was doing then, I mean, I wouldn't say that I even had a style. I was just like, I wrote, I wrote one-liners. I wrote, yeah. you know, just silly jokes. I'd, I was, you know, in my early 20s. I didn't have a lot of life experience that was particular, you know, my life experience was like your sex experience, like not a lot going on. And, uh, based on what you said right now, I, I'm sure that you're living a wonderful life and I encourage you. Um, but you know, like the same way uh, there's some people have, uh, you know, there's so many people that have, you know, diverse, like really interesting upbringings and maybe have like stories about their family or, you know, their, their like, you know, sort of geographical place of origin that are, you know, unique in ways that like me being, you know, a straight white American male growing up in New Jersey in the suburbs. Like I didn't have Where in Jersey know, did you grow up? Uh Livingston was where I was born and then a few other places. What's that in relationship to in the because uh, it's kind of near Newark, if you want a okay. big city that it's near. Yeah, because I, I mean, I was born and raised in, in New Jersey, but it's like you meet other people from New Jersey, unless they pretty much grew up in the same area as you did. Like, it, there's no, you yeah, know. it's a small state, but there's a lot of people and places in it. It's, it's, I think it's the most population or dense density. Yes, the den- yeah, like, densest population is yeah. what I've heard. Oh, wow. Unfortunately, because, uh, yeah, it's like when I was growing up, I lived in a, a suburb that, that was like, had like surrounded by orchards and, and farmland. And now it's just like, it's sprawl, like the whole thing is sprawl. Mm-hmm. But also, you're not living there, so that's yeah, good. What, I, yeah, I don't plan to. Like, once I got out of New Jersey, I'm like, I don't want to go back. I mean, you could move to a place that has an orchard. Do you still live in Jersey? or do No, you no, live I in live in Brooklyn now. So would you go back to New Jersey again? To visit my parents. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean to live. No, no. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I mean, uh, like, it's not... I, I have some friends who live in Hoboken or Jersey City, and, like, there's just one path ride, that's, you know, that's, which is, that's, that's, a, that's a little bit different, though, right? Because it almost feels like... 
Oh yeah, I mean because you, know, you have access to the city. The same, like you can probably get to this place where we are right now faster quicker, than you yeah. could from my home in yeah, Brooklyn. Those, yeah, Hoboken is just the Jersey borough of New York City. Well, yeah, I was just in the Six Borough Comedy Festival, oh, which right. I do think uh, that's kind of like an apt kind of way yeah, to describe. Yeah. Jersey City or Hoboken. Well, let me ask this. So early on, you're doing one-liners, which I, I find when I'm watching a one-liner comic or someone who is a wordsmith, like people who play word games are very smart and intellectual with their material, I find it to be a way for that individual to kind of like isolate themselves from the audience and actually not want to connect and relate as a human. But now watching you, uh, I feel like you're, you're sharing so personally about your, your relationship status and your lifestyle and all those things. I assume I'm, we, we asked you just before I can ask you anything. Uh, so you talk about the poly lifestyle, which is so interesting. Uh, so 18 or, uh, you said 2002. So 16 plus years of being a comedian. How did you, how would you describe, talk about what it takes to go from like one type of comedian all the way up to like the stuff you're doing now. And I don't know if that's two different things at all, but, uh, just something I was thinking about. A fine question. It's if you want it to be one thing, it'll be one thing. <laughs> if you are okay with it being more than one thing, I'll say a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think that any comedian, when they start, whatever you're trying to do, if you're trying to, you know, be honest and personal and connect with the audience, you may not have like the tools of actually, you know, like the joke writing ability that you may develop later or the storytelling ability that you may develop later. Like almost every comedian is better later than when they start. Right. You know, like I feel like maybe. Maybe the the fewest exceptions, even like, you know, Chappelle, when he started, was apparently, you know, uh, great or good or, you know, good for a 14 year old, 15 or whatever he was. But I bet I bet if you asked him, are you better as a comedian now uh, than you were when you were a teenager? My guess is he'd say yes. So whoever you are, like wherever you start from and most people start from not good. Most people start from not good at whatever you're doing. So if you're a one-liner comedian and you're not connecting with an audience, it might not be because you're doing one-liners in the beginning. It might be just because you're not as good a comedian as you'll become. Like I think Hedberg, you know, was one of my favorites when I was starting out and he was, you know, until the end, a one-liner guy, like would never, almost never shared something about his personal life, but I feel like he connected with tons of people, you know, I mean, and maybe not in the same way. Like maybe you look at Stephen Wright and you're like, it's a similar you know, they, they both are telling, you know, sort of silly, like absurdist, like philosophical one line jokes for the most part. Uh, and you know, he also has struck a chord with, you know, very generations, you know, yeah, he's been yeah. at it for decades. And like, what, what do we know about his personal life? Maybe nothing like Dimitri Martin has, uh, I think people, Pete Holmes talked to him, I think about, uh, like what, whether he's thinking about like maybe talking more personally. And I think Dimitri said that he like used to go to Edinburgh and do one person shows there. And because he would go there multiple years, he would have different shows every year. And I think he said he did like use his personal life. He mined his personal life. He talked about his personal life at, times for the for that reason because he's like well what am i going to talk about every year for an hour like why not like talk about my own life and this is sort of paraphrasing from my memory and i don't think it's doing a specific disservice but that was the impression i got and then he's like i just like doing this thing i like these games and puzzles and you know word riddles and these not tricks but just like this is the fun like you know the same way i enjoy sometimes uh, you know uh, an author will write uh you know an autobiography sometimes they'll write uh personal essay 
essays, sometimes an author will write fiction. And obviously you can learn, you know, from a person about like, you know, you're not reading a book being like, who is this author? Maybe it's telling you some things about them. Maybe there are characters based in truth. Maybe there, maybe there's some that aren't. Uh, so I think that like everybody obviously doing stand up. some people are like, Oh, stand up is about telling the truth about yourself. For some people like Carlin, I feel like every part of his set was, he had like three different parts. He would be like one part where it would be like, I don't know, just kind of like, you know, pussy farts, gross, yeah. like whatever, like shocking things kind of to start. <laughs> and then it would be like, kind of like, the silly word things, you know, like evil can evil can get on the plane. I'm getting in the plane. Uh-huh. And like that, like if we think about that, if somebody wrote that joke now, yeah. it's so weird to even think about because he just like made that, that, that issue, like, uh, like he covered that topic so thoroughly. Right. Right. Uh, that, but that joke doesn't do anything for me now, but I've just heard it for my, my whole life. Uh, well, and, and it's also like this, the sequence of just the buildup of basically like lambasting the entirety of the, English language, really. And then ultimately, then moving on to like the institutions of society, you know, taking yeah. on like the government and just the, the basically, you know, the the inequalities and like woes of society. Yeah, but it's true. You really don't from his work, from a stand up work, you really don't know a lot about Carlin. No, I mean, he would talk sometimes about like, I don't vote because like, I like to be an outside observer, like just right. witnessing everything. But yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure that there are places that you can read about who he is as a person i'm sure he's talked yeah. in interviews some but certainly from yeah his body it doesn't of work, have to be yeah. autobiographical right so going back to like when i started uh and i also think there are like one-liner comedians who like here's a, an example of i think a perfect here's a perfect example i he said about the thing he was about to say uh <laughs> i think you guys know nick griffin yeah like nick yeah. griffin is like if you look at any of his late night sets or you know watch him live or get his albums like it's five minutes of like if you took any one joke it would stand alone uh-huh. as like a hilarious joke but then they also just like tell the story of who he is they're about yeah. him being broke or being single or you know struggling with this you know just sort of existential angst and you know doing the thing that you know if you look at mark maron you're like is he telling quote jokes you might say no uh he is doing comedy and maybe you know he would call some things a joke or a bit or a chunk or whatever but he is i feel like the a similar energy comes through him sometimes yeah. as comes through nick griffin they're just shaped differently so it's filtering in nick as like these like sort of perfect one line yeah. you know nuggets that add up to the story of him that maybe if you watch maybe some people watch him and they're like wow what a what a beautiful yeah. story nick, that guy just told nick griffin is like a bag of like perfectly baked and shaped like famous amos chocolate chip cookies and Marin is like a tray of, of chocolate chip cookies but in bar form or something yeah so it's the same product but two different presentations and so i feel like when i started uh, i just i wrote short things because that's what made that's what came to me that's what worked you know like i had that idea and i wrote it like i didn't i watched uh, you know a bunch of other comedians and i loved you know i loved the ones that did that sort of thing so i don't know if it's again like like we were talking about with kinks like a chicken egg thing like did i love mitch hedberg because this was also kind of what i saw myself as or did i become who i was because i was watching i think it was coming from me because I still do think of like, I don't listen to him all the time now. And I don't, you know, I also love all different comedians. Oh, one other example I was going to bring up is Brian Regan, a guy who also we don't, you know, we hear about like maybe some of the details of like, 
he is married at one point and yeah. he is buying a house. He's going to the doctor. But I mean, he is just a comedy force. Yes. But do like I also I don't know. And I've met him and he's a nice person. But I feel like his comedy isn't about like Brian Regan, the right. human being. Uh, it's about as, all of us. And as, like, yeah. Yeah. As much as other other comedians like Nick Griffin's comedy is about Nick Griffin, the human being. Yeah. yeah. Like, in a way that, you know, I don't want to I don't want to speak. I don't think this is being ill of Brian. I think that's just he's not doing the same thing, which yeah. is great. He's doing his art, and everybody gets to do their art. So for me, it started out, I'd write a joke, I'd try it, you know, I'd try 30 different jokes at a five-minute open mic, yeah. and some of them would work and some of them wouldn't. Uh, I'd heard Stephen Wright say a thing that, like, he's like, if I try a joke three times and it doesn't work, I'd stop doing it. I wouldn't think, and if it were three times, then I'd, I'd keep doing it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know what happens if it kept going back and forth. Who knows? Like, yeah. if it got to, which one, I guess whichever one got to three first. But uh-huh. he would say, I would never think if I stopped doing a joke that it wasn't funny. I would just think the audience didn't agree with me. Right. Uh, and, you know, we kind of, obviously, uh, in the beginning, I was like, I want them to agree with me, you know? But... A lot of times they wouldn't, but I also knew that. So I knew that, you know, if I tell 30 jokes and two of them work, then I have two that I can try more confidently next time. And I'll tell 28 other jokes and maybe one or two of those will work and then eventually build a set that way. And so kind of the way that it like looking back on it, the way that I was able to initially uh, group things into chunks that made more sense than just telling, you know, one joke about in the beginning. This is sort of this is just a bit to fair, fair warn you. This is a bit of a kind that I might do now, but just looking, but now because my bits come from my life, I'm like, I think it's also okay to share with people on a podcast as long as I disclaim it for way too long. (laughs) Uh, But like in the beginning, I might've written like one joke about a plumber, one joke about a pizza, one joke about sushi, one joke about mushrooms, one joke about fire and be like, oh, these could all be about Super Mario Brothers, you know? Uh And so I would, you know, have them, I would order them to kind of like logically go from one to the next, even if they didn't have anything to do with each other the thing that happened that sort of changed the way that i did things entirely was in like 2005 uh i think is when i met my friend micah sherman mm-hmm. who uh, started doing uh, stand-up in boston he started doing stand-up elsewhere but moved to boston around then was doing improv comedy was acting and was also doing stand-up is that where you started doing stand-up in boston, boston? yes yeah. and uh he he and i got along really well we would go on to like write musical comedy together and perform that for fun uh and he his style was super in the moment like he had jokes but like the the most fun what was watching him like do crowd work or just i don't even think of it as crowd work it would just be he was doing improv he was like yeah. improvising and riffing and being in the moment and in the room and like even if the audience didn't love it like comedians lining the room which yeah. is like this guy i mean at, he is he doesn't do stand-up anymore which is like when he was doing what he was doing which might not have even you know it doesn't even matter if it was called stand-up he yeah. was just doing the funniest stuff comedy so great and so that was like around 2005 and then 2006 i specifically remember i did the seattle international comedy competition and i saw rory scovel we were in yeah. it together for the first time i met him and uh and he was he did a similar thing like he you know he was being himself micah's being himself but what rory every, every night for the first week that we were there uh we were performing there was like 15 or 16 of us we all did like five minute sets anywhere from like three minutes to seven minutes was like the rule of the competition yeah and most of the people were doing like their you know 
their honed five They're yeah. you know, if they were going to try to go out for a late night set, like that's what they were going for doing that, you know, pristine polished five minutes. There was a couple people who didn't. And Rory was one of them. Like he would do some of the same bits, but sometimes they would be like longer or shorter or yeah. end different. Rory he, is yeah. one of those people that I very much would be interested in knowing what his process is because he's one of the few guys I've seen that like literally every I've seen him do like, like, like tonight show type stuff or like a uh, comedy special. And it all just feels it, it has a very uh, immediate. It, it has a free, it has a feeling like he's just like, he's literally like some people it's just like, wow, those jokes are so well constructed. So polished. He, his just feels like he's making it up on the spot. And very often he is, but sometimes I, I'm sure that when he's, when he's recorded a special, yeah. he's probably worked on at least some of it. But also I think there have been times when maybe he's like taped, you know, a bunch of shows in a week and who knows how much, I don't know what percentage, uh, stop trying to nail me down on exactly what percentage <laughs> of riffing versus Give us non- the numbers, Mike. Yeah. I say it's 50, 50. Um, but yeah, I'm, I bet that, I mean, I know that Rory has improvised whole hours, you know? Yeah, and yeah, I also yeah. like when, so now I feel like when I'm in a, in a room where like the audience is there to see me, like when I go back to Boston, there's a show called the gas that happens every Friday yeah, night. Yeah, and yeah. I, I often, uh, will every, you know, every few months or so, like I'll go up there and I'll, I'll headline that show and I won't like I, I mean if I one ideal way that it could go is if I can like you know start talking about what's happening like that day or in that room or you know adding on to things that had happened earlier and yeah. just I try I do my best to like be in that moment and sort of ride that as much as possible creating like you know nuggets of things that weren't jokes before but I'm like oh no yeah. now I can yeah. like discover that and so and sometimes you tape, you yeah. tape yourself and oh, then yeah. keep track of that yeah yeah I mean and sometimes like the the thing that comes out is just just perfect in that moment for that moment because it's about something that another comedian said that led me to a new thing that wouldn't make sense without that or somebody in the audience said a thing but it's not like that's the beauty of like you know when improv goes really well or riffing or crowd work and so that's the thing that i wasn't doing at all but when i saw rory just like you know finish a joke and keep yeah living Mm. in the world of that joke and doing different stuff every night like based on the space based on the audience based on just his whims whatever you and i was like Oh, and so that was a thing that around that time I had like a specific joke that somebody I tried out a couple of times and somebody was like looking through my notebook and they're like, why don't you do this? It seems funny. I was like, I tried it a couple of times. Like it never got the laugh that I wanted. And they're like, you should do it more. And so like, I remember I did it again. And now with this new mentality of like one, so I, I, I said the joke the way that I'd written it and it didn't get a laugh, but then I sort of just, I said another thing. I was like this, you know, whatever it was like, and that became the punchline and everything that I'd said was a setup to a funny thing, but I hadn't discovered yet. So now I'm like, that was sort of like, you know, a microcosm of what I do now to create new material is like, I, you know, I think of ideas that I want to talk about. I think of, you know, if a funny thing happens, I jot it down or I record it. And then when I go on stage, I don't have the same way. Like in the beginning I had beginning to end, I would know how I would say the thing. But at this point I'd be like, here's what, here's what I'm talking about. And then I sort of find, uh, you know, find what is funny about it yeah. in that moment, uh, which allows me, you know, now to, you know, not be limited to just the, you know, the, the few things that I did think about. And I can, I'm, I'm now like, op- I'm open to, I'm, I guess I've always been open to failing because it's always, it's always possible that you won't yeah. find the thing in right. that moment that night, but little by little over the course of, you know, time, days, you know, sets o- over a course of a night or weeks or months or whatever it is. The analogy that I give sometimes is like, uh, I don't know if you've ever done or seen glass blowing. 
blowing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I've never done it. I've seen it. So there's mesmerizing. You haven't done oh, yeah. glass blowing? <laughs> I mean, Come on, Patrick, well, with this with beard, you there know. are people. Yeah. You could, keep, yeah. yeah, you might want to trim it a bit. But yeah. uh, so I, I went to an, an arts summer camp where there was glass blowing. And so I did it a little bit and I saw people do it. And there's like a big furnace full of like 2000 degree or so uh, liquid glass, just like molten glass. And you stick, you know, a pipe into it and then you pull it out and you have to keep spinning it around because if you don't spin it, it'll like fall because it's liquid. And then as as you're spinning it you're also maybe shaping it with like tools and uh and then if you just spin it it'll become sort of round and you can make it be the shape that you want and then when it cools enough then you don't have to spin it but then you can like heat it up again a little bit and then it becomes a little more malleable and so i feel like for me like the idea of jokes start as ideas that are in this like molten liquid form i'm like gathering and like here's this is what the this is what the idea will be made of this is what the joke will be made of eventually and then i try to keep you know spinning it yeah. and trying it out and like the uh, various audiences perhaps are the tools with which i shape it audiences are tools is yeah. what i'm saying uh or, or thank you, audiences. they also yeah. sometimes are like you know comics talk about things in terms of temperature that's a hot crowd and if you have hotter glass maybe you ha- you're able to make the thing quickly you've just added uh, a thing yeah yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's that's great or i made the metaphor more distracting i gotta <laughs> i gotta connect this to our, our the the podcast where you just recorded before this please because uh we were talking to katie hannigan and her whole thing that she was very, driving very hard was that you know you have to have this kind of structured writing process because for her she sits down every day she does 30 minutes of free writing and then she does like you know an hour or two of like uh uh writing exercises and she does this every single day which um for me is like the opposite because i will just do kind of more what you're talking about where i'll just get up and i'll try stuff in front of the crowd and i'll see what works and but that's not as uh good of a writing process because as the she kind of made fun of me a little bit like, well, it's kind of hard to write five minutes a day. <laughs> if, if, if that's the time that you're getting, that's absolutely true. So I think it is the, uh, you, you get the, to use your analogy, I guess you get that molten pit of uh, glass from all that writing that you do. Um, and then you, yeah. And then you can shape it from there. I think that's probably the, the best way to kind of get stuff going. Uh, just to, I mean, just to add, I'll say number one for Katie, uh, and Seinfeld, who I feel like is a similar, mm. you know, methodologist yeah. as far as like sitting down to write yeah. like that. If that's what works for you, then do that. I don't do that. I don't sit down to write. I carry uh, a recorder at all times. And so like at all points during the day, if I think of something or if in conversation I say something or if I notice something yeah. that could be f- either funny or interesting or important, you know, if I'm like watching, you know, a movie that's not a comedy, but about something that I care about, I'm like, oh, I, this is, you know, if it sparks something, I'm like, I want to talk about this topic. I'll speak the idea into my recorder uh, at the end of like when my recorder's full or. Uh, so you're not using a phone for that? No, I'm not. I, I, I didn't use, I, when I started this process, I didn't have a smartphone because yeah. it was you know uh probably 12 to 15 years ago and uh but i when i started i just had a notebook i used to do it just carrying a notebook and instead of uh speaking it i would open the notebook and write into it and then if i was driving i would use my recorder because i used to i've always had this recorder to record my sets on uh and then i was like oh i guess like while i'm driving it's better not to try to yeah. write but speaking is okay uh, even though I have been pulled over for, you know, using an electronic device while really? holding my, that's uh, hilarious. my recorder.
quarter, uh, which they didn't uh, care. <laughs> um, but uh, I was told that anything electronic, even an electric razor, they said you can't use. And I asked, yeah. what about a not electric razor? They're like, that's technically not against the law. So uh, even though I feel like that would be a little less safe. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, because you got, the, you got that brush with the foam. What about and a the straight razor, that's, officer? Yeah. I mean, that's legal. Yeah. As long as us, uh, having a straight razor is legal. So the point is that I would... I, I now like the process where I start by speaking because speaking is what it's going to end up as. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I speak it into my recorder, then I'll write it into my notebook at a certain point, and then when the notebook is full, which is usually maybe like once or twice a year, I'll sit. Uh, that's the only time that I'll sit down at a computer and type uh, all of the notebook into the computer, which takes probably like it's about ninety pages in like a moleskin notebook, and it usually takes about nine or ten hours. Wow. Uh, and, so wait, do you record then write? Then type? That's correct. That's right. Okay. Uh, and also, in the meantime, I'm also going on stage, taping my sets, riffing, creating new things then. And then when I listen back, I take the things that were new and then put them through the same process. And how often do you review the, the set stuff? Do you do that immediately after doing that? Or? Not not immediately because, I mean, right now, uh, on the way here, I listened to a set that I did in February, and it's June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's I have about 120-something sets. Some of them are headlining sets of, you know, close to an hour. Yeah. Some of them are, you know, 5 to 15-minute sets from it's a lot of material. In the city. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot. I, it, uh, it's so interesting hearing you describe your process because I actually thought you were a meticulous computer writer just because I don't know if I'm matching the rhythm of your performance style and the cadence of how you speak here on the podcast and also on stage. But I'm also thinking of uh, the the bit you were doing about Sisyphus recently at V-Spot mm-hmm. uh, and just thinking as you were doing it, it, it's such a visual piece and I'm like seeing it as you're speaking it and the, the beats were so structured, uh, at least from what I recall, uh, it felt like something, oh, he wrote, like that's very written. I really got to listen back to that uh, because that's a bit that is, uh, I'm like, if I have one bit right now that I'm working on, which I have a lot of bits I'm working on, but that's one that... I don't do it the same way all the time. Uh, it probably went great the time that you saw it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you think it went great. Uh, <laughs> I, I probably also, I, I don't remember that specific set, but I do know there are times when it, I'm still in the process of finding where that is, but I've never sat down and wrote from beginning to end you know, how that joke goes. It's so amazing because yeah. the more we talk to comedians on this podcast, and go through people that from various levels of success and various um, years of experience, like there literally is just no way, one way to do it. You know, like uh, uh, there's no one way to write. There's no one way to find success in this. There's no, there does. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about like, like the amount of work that you put into it, regardless of what that work is. But like there doesn't just, there just really doesn't seem to be like a specific way to go about it, which is kind of, Awesome and probably infuriating for some of those people that like want to have like a specific way, you know, like I definitely am trying to find my process. So, so, you know, it's like you try to pick and choose from like what's out there and see like what works for you. If I may offer you, uh, you know, doctors go to med school, but then at a certain point they their experiences are different. Like, hey, how do you become, uh, you know, a psychiatrist compared to a dentist, compared to a surgeon, compared yeah. to a general practitioner? Like, okay, well, you start this way. You These are the basics. And then at a certain point, like, it's not like every doctor does their literal own thing. Yeah. Uh, but as a comedian, you know, like, there are some comedians who, like, I probably don't meticulously sit down and write now because 
it, and this might be also just a speculative guess that could be not true the same way, like that. Where, where, where do kinks from? Who know? Where do kinks come from? Where did, I mean, I should have written this one in advance. Uh, <laughs> the point is, I, I mean, I did sit down before this podcast to write out everything good, uh, good. that I thought you might ask me, but the idea, like I have been, I think at times like obsessive, not, not, I don't have OCD, but I think if there's a spectrum of it, like if you look at like, Hey, do I have OCD? Let me look at the symptoms or, you know, the, the manifestations thereof. I might be like, oh, I have more of these than some people do, yeah. which I think in some ways serves me. Like I do tape every set. I do listen back to most of them eventually as soon as I can. I do have the process, even though it's not writing every day where I do speak and then write and then type. I know that I don't have to do that. I could just speak it into my phone and have it translate and then sort of, you know, fix that in post or whatever. But I like, I mean, I like these rituals, uh, which in part, I think they're rituals because they are what have worked for me and they're comfortable, even if they're not, you know, the easiest or the least time consuming. Yeah. I would say that they also bear fruit because every time I speak, it's what I think one thing. Then later, maybe it's a week later, maybe it's a month later, uh, I'm then writing what I spoke and I'm like, I'm a different person now. I've had different experiences. Maybe I've done it on stage and thought different things. And so what I'm writing is never almost never exactly what I spoke because also you, I feel like I think that and I'm not a scientist, but I think you, writing operates, you know, a different part it, of your it brain. Absolutely does. It does. And yeah. then when I'm typing later, I feel like that's also a, a separate thing. And it's also then months later. So, it, you know, I get the benefit of, you know, three different ages and wisdom experiences of me, you know, working on and different the same, parts of your brain, kind of the way that you're transcribing yeah. it. Yeah. So different time and space versions of me all teaming up to create the best thing. And for some people, like if I also sat down to write for an hour a day or two hours a day, uh, which by the way, I'll get to another thing in a second. Uh, I, I think that there would be too much. Like for me, like I all, I have like just in thinking and this isn't, this isn't to say that anybody's way is, you know, right or wrong or good or bad, because as you said, everybody gets to decide what is the best, what works for you and what you like. Uh, but for me, like now, sometimes when I'm listening back, if I'm like, I don't actually understand why this idea would be good or funny. I used to just type it no matter what. I'm like, well, yeah. I wrote it, so I'm typing it. But now I'll also do some, I don't do censoring or editing of myself. Uh, like when I'm coming up with the ideas, like I record all the ideas, yeah. but then later I might be like, oh, these are the ones that I want to focus on. And then later, oh, these are the ones that I want to focus on. And so I'm like helping myself by also being like an editor yeah. later. And I think that, you know, a wealth of, if at any point I, I stopped coming up with material. You can go back. I can go back. Things. And also then I could, start doing a new writing regimen. If I'm like, oh, my old way isn't yeah. working, then I could try, maybe I will try writing every day. Maybe I will try free writing. Uh, a thing that I do uh, do is uh, every morning I wake up and ideally I meditate for about 20 minutes and then I do this, uh, there's a website called 750words.com, which is basically, uh, so I, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the artist's way. I'm not, but <laughs> I know that they, there's a thing about morning pages where yeah. they're like, you know, three pages a day, which is about 750 words. And this website in particular just helps. It sort of like analyzes the words that you're talking about, the oh, mood that you're in. Wow. Like, it's just like a, a neat extra thing that it does. It stores it. And for me, it's just nice to, 
uh, do that. Like I'm not always, I'm not doing it as material. Sometimes I will. Like if I'm right, if I'm working on a book, I might be like, let me try to get, you know, a little bit of a chapter done in these morning pages. Sometimes yeah. I'll do it as like, uh, an email to my girlfriend. If I haven't seen her in a while, if I'm on the road, I'll be like, Hey, I was thinking about you. These are some things that have happened. Or if I was seeing her, I'd be like, Hey, like spending the day with you necessary. Uh, spending the day with you yesterday. Wow. <laughs> spending the day with you is not necessary, but it is valued. Um, right. And like, so just sort of like sort of meditative affirmations of our relationship, which yeah. uh, are, it's nice to relive the, the good times and remember the challenging times that are no longer present or that we're still working through or whatever it might be. Uh, and so I also am writing every day, but I'm not writing comedy every day. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also, it's funny to think about like writing, like when you write a song, you could write down the sheet music, you could write down the lyrics, but you could also like a person could write a song by strumming a guitar and singing and never write it down. There's some comedians yeah. who never write something down. There's some musicians who never write something down. Uh, you know, painter, like, I feel like, the, I guess talking about writing, like when you write music, uh, when you write a song, like the word write doesn't have to mean literally with right, a pencil. Right, it doesn't right. be literally on yeah. a computer. So I feel like, like the, composing ideas. Yeah. The process it's creating, yeah. uh, and composing is also a fine word. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think that, uh, the, I, I'm now, I'm more focused on the process, which leads to the product. Uh, but in the beginning, you know, it, when you're starting out, you are like, you know, you're a child because you don't know how to do this thing. Like yeah. when, you, when you're a kid, teachers are like, you have to learn these things. And like, as an adult, you might be like, oh, I didn't have, to, that one actually wasn't useful for me. Learning that only taught me that I don't need to learn anything more about that history or math or whatever it is. And you get to decide like based on, you know, what everyone else is doing and what you're learning, what things do resonate with you. If you're like, oh, I really should do this, but you don't want to i mean you don't have to like I, the idea like and that's why i talk about sometimes on my podcast uh you know the idea like you want your work and your joy ultimately to be combined intertwined yeah. like you yeah. want to work uh like joyfully and you want to you know if there's things that you enjoy like comedy like you want to work at them yeah and you don't want to make it you know a job that you hate like the idea of like a day job that you have to do but uh you want like, I, and again, I'm saying you, and whenever anybody says like you, you have to, you want to, you get to like, it's really, they're saying them like, Me, because yeah, I yeah. only, I only can say for myself and most, most of the people that I've listened to most of my, you know, sort of colleagues, peers, friends, you know, comedy acquaintances, like interviews that I've read with people that I don't know as well. Uh, I mean, it's most of it is about figuring out who you are yeah. and you're the only one who can do that. Nobody else can point to you and be like, I mean, I could, I could like watch your sets for a long time and be like, here's Mike, who I think you, you are. I Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. I could, I mean, and if somebody paid me a lot of money to tell them who they were, then maybe I would do it. Yeah. But, uh, I mean the amount of time that wouldn't be necessary to go into it. Uh, when in fact, here's a, there's a, a Zen story that I heard that I don't actually, a weird thing is that I don't know where I heard it, but for, I thought that I, I took Tai Chi for a little while from a friend and I thought he had told me my, my Tai Chi instructor friend, but I later asked him like, Hey, where was the story from? And he's like, I don't know that story. Yeah. And I was like, well, weird. Did I come up with this story? But I, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I heard it somewhere, but I don't know the source, but it's a, a, a king, uh, or some ruler, uh, calls to the, a wise man, uh, uh, like a monk. And he says, can you come here? And 
I've heard that meditation is good. Uh, I'm a very I'm very busy. How the fuck is some dude from New Jersey that went to school in Boston? Um, a meditating Tai Chi doing vegan. Like what happened? What <laughs> happened in your upbringing that uh, got you here? Uh, well, a fine question that I'll answer after my story, <laughs> uh, because this is where I am. Uh, the guy says, monk, will you meditate for me? I'm so busy. And I hear that meditation is good for you. And the monk says, Absolutely. I will 100% do that. The only thing is I have to go to the bathroom right now. So if you can go to the bathroom for me, then I'll meditate for you. Yeah. And the guy's like, I can't do that. And he's like, well, then I can't do that. That's so that's so good. That's like got the perfect uh, like that uh, passive aggression of like a, like the spiritually fit, you know? I mean, and I don't even think, I think it's definitely passive. And I mean, I think it's only as aggressive as I feel like the, the monk is like a a mirror, you know what I mean? Like the, the king is like, can you do this? I'm like, if you can, you know, I was like, I'll be, I'll be happy to like, it doesn't like the attitude I think can be like the monk is, you know, the sort of the ideal of the monk in my mind is like the monk is like a a pond, you know, anything that, you know, it's just reflective reflecting the beauty of you know the trees uh and the world around it the moon yeah. if it's night or day sometimes the moon's out in the day mm-hmm. and uh and sometimes like you know the, the king comes by and he's like you know just rippling something and but it returns immediately to the pure uh you know reflective surface that it was uh and he's like well i, I can only reflect back to you like what you're giving to me tell also, me, also, tell me monk's what- a real fun tv show Oh, yeah. What is Tony Shalhoub? Is that his name? So I guess here's who you are, is a guy who brings up other things, uh, which is I have fine. to. I'm an agent of chaos. I have to kind of keep it. Uh, I have to do that. Speaking of which, I, I, I would I say wanna... that, can I say real quick? Yeah. I would say that you get to. You don't have to. Mm. I get to. I like to. Yeah. I do. I yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, um, wait, wait, let, let, he was going to answer my question that I interrupted oh, yeah, yeah. him with. How did rudely. I become who I am? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Which I also haven't gotten to all of your questions no. from before, but we'll, we'll never we're going to them get all. there. We're oh, going to yeah. get there. I mean, they're both kind of they're similar questions. I mean, I don't know if there was anything in my upbringing specifically that led me to all the like. You can definitely look backwards. It and, wasn't your mom's hairy legs. No, no, I don't think so. Hmm. I actually don't even know. I, I still don't know if my mom shaves her legs. Interesting. Uh, I could ask, but. Uh, Sometimes I talk, I look, I look back at my comedy career. People are like, how did you get to where you are? And I'm like, well, you know, like, how did you become a professional comedian? How, what were the steps that you took? And like, you know, it's different for everybody. You can't take, in fact, so looking back, that same 2006 comedy festival in Seattle was, uh, one gradual step towards becoming a full-time comedian because at the time I'd been doing comedy about four years. I had some jokes that I thought were good. I, at that festival, Rory had a manager at the time who was running another festival in DC. She saw me and I was sort of invited or encouraged to apply to that. And so the next year, like 2007, I went to this festival and I was on a show that was like a club comic competition, a club, a club college comedy competition some of the judges were like one of the the booker for zanies in chicago and one of them was a woman who would become my college booking agent for the next decade uh and so she saw me do a seven minute set uh because i had done other sets that i'd been seen doing in in seattle and she saw me and i got word that she wanted to be uh she was like do you want to 
perform at colleges. And I, I had, I did want, like I want having a college booking agent was a thing I'd heard could be really great. Like if you have an hour of com, like I was like, I think I, I have an hour of comedy. I'm not a headliner at this point. Uh, like in the Boston scene, you know, there was the headliners were all there for like 30 years. And usually if you come up, uh, and you've been doing it long enough there, maybe you could break through, but most people would move to New York or LA. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was, so I was still like, you know, featuring or maybe opening sometimes or whatever it was. Uh, but I was like, I have, you know, I've been building, I performed at one or two colleges and I was like the opportunity to get to, like, I was like colleges, you know, not only pay well, but also like our fun. Like I was still like, you know, young enough that I was, I was still in grad school. I was still hanging out with college kids. I was like, not this. And I felt like my material at the time was like good for like that. Uh, and so I, I got this college agent, and then the next year I applied to the, I don't know if you guys know what NACA is. Yeah, yeah. The, and so it's, you know, a college booking, uh, again, a sort of a competition that you submit to, and I submitted and got into, like, a region that I did well at. And then I got, you know, like, a few dozen colleges for the year, which paid enough money that I could stop doing my job. And so that was sort of... and What then, was that at that time? Uh, my job, I was, I was in grad school studying linguistics. I was living for free as a resident assistant actually getting a little money from that what school uh boston university okay. and i was doing a linguistics related job at a technology company i worked in the speech and language department uh and it was basically annotating uh we would look at these documents files uh like newspaper articles Were you teaching ai to like read legal documents and uh, yeah or, or newspaper yeah or journalistic yeah. documents uh to get them better at understanding them wow uh, and like there was like translation software. There was a lot of different programs uh, that were running in the department. And I was just, they were just like, tell us what kind of nouns these are, you know, like yeah. figure out like and then feed it back into the computer. And it's probably doing great now. Sounds like a very uh, funny job. <laughs> I mean, there at one point it was owned by Verizon, the company at, at the time that I was working there. Not familiar with them. Uh, mm. Oh, it doesn't matter. But uh, <laughs> they so there was one job where we would listen to calls. Uh, and we were helping like improve the the voice recognition software in the phone system. Wow! So like sometimes when people would call up, like I would be listening. Wow! Uh, when they're like these these calls are monitored, I was monitoring. Interesting. I, I, I could have at any point like yeah. this. So this is a way in which the job was funny in a moment. Like I was like I could hit uh, unmute and be like, hey, stop swearing at this robot. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and they're like, oh, I didn't even know that the robot yeah. cared. I'm like, this robot cares. Yeah. Um, I sometimes. <laughs> so, so thank God you were able to quit that. I mean, I love college. I really, I loved it, but I also, you know, doing it, I was doing it maybe between 10 to 20 hours a week. Comedy was sort of, uh, it was a great job because it was flexible and uh, I could do those 10 to 20 hours any, like I could come in for two 10 hour days and then be done and travel for five days. Yeah. Or I could not come in for a week and do double the next week, usually, unless there was like a specific project that needed doing. So that was very useful because I was getting more and more like local comedy paying work that I could, you know, go to Maine or New Hampshire, or Rhode Island or Connecticut, or I'll name all the rest of the states, you know, yeah. uh, Vermont's one, um, that I would go. What's you know, another state? Uh, no, I don't, that's all I know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, elsewhere in Massachusetts, few. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, and I would like, you know, go and make, you know, 50 bucks to open or a hundred bucks to feature, you know, sometimes a little more if I was, I got to perform at Brandeis where I'd gone to undergrad, like around that time without having a college agent. Was and, there any like defining moment for you? Maybe not, but like where you were just like, whoa, like, uh, this is a next level, you know, that kind of thing. Like, or was it all just so gradual 
I mean, getting the college agent was, like I said, a step towards that next thing. Yeah. And getting that NACA, that, that was like the, the thing where I was like, oh, when, when that went well, and I was like, this, if I make this much money from each comedy show, which isn't you know, the most money in the world, but it was a lot more than 50 or 100 bucks. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll say, like the, the first college I ever performed at, I have actually got like, uh, I think I asked them for $1,000 and they were like, we only have $750. Yeah. And I was like, I'll take it because I probably hadn't made that much money. I just hit some wires. I probably hadn't made that much money doing comedy at all. I was making, yeah. you know, 50, 100 yeah, bucks most people, or whatever. Yeah, wouldn't. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that like, usually just for anyone listening who is getting into comedy, like if a college, uh, uh, doing a college quote should like most colleges have enough to pay a a comedian with no credits with a- anybody like a thousand a thousand dollars i remember i remember giving those checks to comics when i booked my college shows and uh yeah just like now looking back it's like oh yeah colleges just have budgets for that stuff yeah and, i mean there's a everybody pays a fee or whatever it is yeah. and so yeah that when i learned that I could make as much money there as I could in like one week of work for one night of comedy. Yeah. I was like, I would rather not, you know, I, I did love the job, but I also love not having that job. Yeah. So that was the moment. And then I guess doing last comic standing was the thing that then was the next like big. Like, yeah. How was that experience? Uh, good. Yeah. Yes. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> no, because we, we've, we've had a couple people on here that have done last comic standing. And, uh, I, I think, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's just like, it was amazing to be able to do that. But there was like a varying degree of like, some people felt like maybe they were like a little rep- misrepresented on the show. Like the way that they kind of interacted versus like what was there. Oh, sure. That, people, that happened to me yeah. the, the, the season before I got on and made it to the top five. Uh, I got shown to do like one joke and I was in like a a medley of like, don't tell jokes like this. Don't tell jokes about (laughs) babies and how you don't like them. (laughs) And it was, it was me and Carmen Lynch and Gina Brian, like all, you know, they're, they're both great comedians who are professionals and like we're professionals. We were all professionals at the time as well, but you know, they were just cutting together a show and even that two seconds, like they showed that joke, my, you know, maybe five seconds of me saying, something about a baby that I didn't like. Uh, and then I was able to join the, join like SAG AFTRA or whatever yeah. after at the time, because they, I'm like, I, I got somebody, I got like the union to be like, Hey, you should, you have to pay him money because he's a professional. Cause they, they sometimes, if you're not a professional, like which, and the question of what is a professional, yeah. uh, is, uh, an interesting one. But at the time it's like, Hey, it's you get paid for comedy if you're a person who gets paid for comedy right, right, and i'm right. like well pay me for comedy because i'm a person who does get paid because you were already comedy. doing all the college gigs right uh but mostly it was the important thing was that i'd been on tv once before oh, okay. i'd been on live at gotham on comedy central oh, right. and that was a thing where i could have joined the union then and that would have cost me money then and then the second t- I, at the time it was like the second time you do a tv show that's union i think you have to join the union yeah that i'm you know i'm not an expert but that was my understanding so i'm like oh well this is now the second time i'm doing it so please so basically all the money they got me i gave to them because uh that's what i had to do to join to have the power of the union i had to pay them that money which is very valuable and helped me a lot since and so yeah but the 
I definitely, yeah, was misrepresented. Uh, mostly the, the worst that happens to you on those shows is that you, as your life is the same as it was afterwards. Right. Like nobody, almost nobody remembers the me looking, you know, silly. I don't even think I looked bad, but right. the them trying to make me look like a bad comedian yeah. for five seconds, 10 years ago. Uh, That's not going to, but yeah, I think that's probably why most people were saying that it's a positive experience exactly for that reason, because like, uh, like chances are you actually get more exposure there. I can't imagine any way that it hurts. Right. Like, I mean, I I could imagine, but for like 99%, almost everybody, most people end up the same. Like, and that's what happened to me that time. Like uh, that, you know, in 2008, nothing happened. Although I love the idea of a power hungry bar show booker being like, I was going to have Mike Kaplan (laughs) next week, but he said that thing on last comic standing. He just doesn't like babies and I can't get behind that. Uh, And he's like, I used to be a baby man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And now I'm a baby man uh so the so that to answer your question of like whether there was a turning yeah. point that was definitely the time that uh, i was now a professional i was like you know get i was getting paid to headline some clubs around the country but i wasn't a draw right like last comic standing is the thing that made some people now come out and see me so i was able yeah. to get booked at like bigger venues like more prestigious places clubs that would when they advertised me now people would be like oh i just saw that guy so right. i'm going to come see him uh so to answer your question about how i am who i am my mom didn't let me play with guns <laughs> Uh, my mom didn't either she didn't let me play with any toy guns even like my mom threw away the even squirt guns yeah yeah yeah, no no water guns no i wasn't allowed to have gi joes i think that's a good thing yeah uh i mean i think that i did have gi joes that's why i'm not vegan although that could have turned into that could have turned into a gun kink uh if you were deprived guns right that's the perhaps now i can only come when i have a gun in my mouth (laughs) that's true for some people i was actually just talking about this with my mom because she's very strongly anti-gun so strong that she wouldn't let me have these toys but and she and i am also now like i don't i've never shot a a real gun i not i'm not specifically interested in it i am uh, a big fan of people not getting shot with guns of course uh so i like my my beliefs align with my mom's even though as a kid i was like come on let me shoot those guns you know but my mom was raised by a mother who did let her have guns like my mom was allowed to have them turned out not to want them i wasn't allowed to have them turned out not to want them so i think the common thread is actually you know who our parents are and what messages they're giving us in addition to what toys we're playing with like my grandmother told me her mother beat her all the time and so she's like i'm not gonna beat my kid i got beat you got you didn't get beat no my grandmother got beat didn't beat my mom and my mom then didn't beat me so it's like but my we're we're the same age actually that sounds reasonable Yeah. yeah Uh, 67. Uh, so. now you are making more <laughs> jokes. Uh, I don't, I don't care how old people think I am, but, uh, I just wanted people to know that you're making jokes. Uh, it's, I think it's often important for people to know when joking is happening. Yes. Uh, Probably at all times on a comedy podcast, like, most likely it would be weird. Like, here's the thing, a way to make it not clear. If, yeah. you, if you made a joke that you were older than you are, but you only upped it by like three years, right? Uh, exactly. like, you know, what we're talking about like 75, right? Yeah. Born in 75. <laughs> so old. Um, <laughs> But so I think that I am definitely like I care about, you know, the like my mom raised me to be like, I don't know who wasn't raised to be a kind person, yeah. but like she explicitly says that. And that is a thing that I am like explicitly talking about in my comedy, which is, I think 
in the, some of the ways that it manifests is with, uh, with veganism where I'm like, I want to be kind to animals yeah. that are unnecessarily suffering and I, cheese. And also, I mean, the animals that make cheese are suffering. That's correct. That <laughs> it's a hundred percent the same industry to, in order for an animal to, I wish we had time to get into some of those. I mean, just, we don't, just to be real to quick, some of those deeper, I mean, yeah, yeah. Th- nothing too deep. Yeah, that, give us, give us the elevator pitch. If a ca- <laughs> if an animal, it, like if, if, a, if a cow and is going to give milk, they need to have a baby. The baby will often be turned into veal or raised to be another animal that is tortured and killed. Yeah. Uh, The end. So So if you want that delicious cheddar slice, just know you killed a baby. I mean, or just tortured it. Or Ed Pokrovsky has this great joke about uh, dogs in movies. And he's like, you know how I know dogs were abused in the making of a film is if a dog was in the film because no dog wants to be acting, you know, that's Uh, fun, which is a, Except for Benji. A bad approximation of the joke. Except but. for Benji. He was just an actor's actor. Yeah. And Clifford. So, and polyamory is another way that I feel like if, if I was to say, like, I'm a utilitarian, you know, mm-hmm. into maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain for all living beings that can, or non-living beings that can uh, feel pleasure and pain, like veganism is about minimizing pain and suffering. Yeah. And polyamory is in a way about a certain kind of maximizing pleasure yeah. uh, about, you know, obviously for people who want to love more than one person, then yeah. you want to then be with people who want to love more than one person. Uh, or and what, obviously whatever, if you want to be monogamous, be monogamous and be monogamous with a person who wants to be monogamous. Yeah. And otherwise just be open and honest with yourself about who you are, what you want and what you're capable of like some people want say they want monogamy but then never actually do uh practice monogamy successfully it might be better for them to admit oh maybe i can be a more successful non-monogamist right. which is kind of where i was like i you know i was raised in our society that was like be monogamous yeah, you know yeah. have uh, a man and a woman that's what they said and i'm like what about a man and a man they're like you could do that i'm like well i, I don't want to but great yeah uh some some parts of society i'm glad are you know increasingly being more okay with just you know yeah. hey, any adults want to do anything and when people are like well what, what's next you're going to be multiple people right. well that seems fine by me as well i don't yeah. know why like you can have a corporation with two people you can have a corporation with five people why can't you have a marriage with more i'm, I'm not like yeah. politically like going around uh you know promoting this idea but i also who cares like there's there are many successful you know family units uh, uh that have more than two adults i do yeah. i do think in a lot of ways like even though the baby boomers probably failed at their ultimate uh like revolution of society in a lot of ways they succeeded in the sense of like getting it started and um there is maybe kind of a continuation with some of their children and things like that nowadays where you know there used to be the kind of nuclear family with like the 2.5 children and like everybody was like you know white christian blah 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 not you know everybody wasn't but that was the yeah but that was the that was the the picture picture, right and now it's just kind of like uh, that that notion was challenged in the 60s in so many different ways, and some of those things kind of made it through and some of them didn't. And now we're getting to the point, I think, in society where we're kind of challenging, like, you know, in the same way you're like, well, just because you were raised Christian doesn't mean you have to believe that. Just because you were raised with the notion that monogamy is the way that the and marriage is the way that everything has to work doesn't mean that you have to do that for your life. Just because you were raised with the way that, like, men wear pants, not dresses, doesn't mean you can't wear a fucking dress if you want to, like, you know? And I would say the the different the thing that is happening now is that 
these voices are being heard more because this yeah. has been happening. There've been gay people for way longer than, you know, since the sixties, there've been trans people. There have been people living alternative, you know, quote, alternative lifestyles. I, think, I don't think there were any gay people before 1970. Now, mm. listen, uh, <laughs> but the point is that now I think it's what a great thing is, is that there are so many more avenues of, you know, like pop culture and, you know, like media yeah. for these voices to be heard so that even, and even obviously like the internet ha- is its double-edged sword of like all the abuse that can happen through it. But also, you know, all the people who are alone in a town that wouldn't have known that there mm. were any other people like them in whatever yeah. way they were different. Obviously kink is the main one. And, uh, right. uh, that's just, a. of course it's not. The well, that's probably one but, of the benefits. Of, that's probably one of the positive benefits. There's, there's a lot of negative aspects, but a lot of positive benefits of having the internet and having a more connected society where we can like kind of like learn about those things outside of our little sphere. Oh yeah. Well, and specific comedy specifically as one of those delivery systems. So it's, it's, I, I, I guess I brought it up earlier. Like, I think it's really cool that you're bringing these big ideas into your comedy because I heard you working out the polyamory stuff. Uh, I'm curious now I am wondering like how many people are going to hear about veganism for the first time through a CD of yours they pick up. Uh, do you talk about veganism in, in your stuff? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that, uh, like the, uh, the stereotype about vegans is like, how do you, how do you know someone's a vegan? They'll tell you. Right. Uh, whereas for the most part, uh, like there are, it's interesting to me that there are people now who know my comedy, but I've done so much of it that they don't know. Like my first album was called vegan mind melt. Right. right okay. Uh, and yeah, every, every album that I've put out has had at least a few, you know, a few minutes, a few yeah. tracks or one, one track, so many yeah. jokes, uh, you know, not, not like a majority, but you know, if the, yeah. the album, Ooh, uh, if the album is, Oh, we've got messages. I see. If the album is like 45 minutes, uh, there's probably maybe like, you know, three to five minutes about veganism, uh, on each of, well, that's so cool. It's just cool that you, uh, these are things that are important to you that you're putting out there in your work. And, uh, it's it's sort of osmosis sometimes that kind of goes back to, uh, so there have been people, number one, who have like told me, Hey, I, for the first time, like I I am vegan because I listened to you and I liked what you said about it. What, what you're saying makes sense. The stuff that I said about it here weren't jokes, just to be clear, those were only facts. Uh, so listen to my comedy, get the jokes. Uh, but, uh, also, I think I was talking about these things, like things that were in my life that were important to me since the, you know, my first album came out, you know, close to 10 years ago. Uh, And this was like, I guess the new process of, you know, creating comedy in a different way had started, but certainly hasn't gotten to where it is now. Because I feel like my first album was like a lot of jokes that were, you know, silly and a lot of jokes that were also like about important things that I cared about. But they were all sort of like, this is all the things that I thought about. So Mm -hmm. this is all this is what the comedy is, because it's what came to me and what I made of it. Whereas and not to say that I'm doing things completely differently now, but I am uh, now I get to I I am choosing more. I'm like, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to find uh, the best to my ability, uh, the funniest way to say these things that I care about. Yeah. Uh, Mike, and, you clearly have nothing to speak about. Um, that's been very clear from the past hour. Yeah. But I thought, uh, Mike, you've been great. You got, you got so much, we could do another two, yeah. two episodes. Yeah. Just get, I mean, we, I feel like we've, uh, I'll be happy to return. I feel like this, this conversation is a snapshot of what's going on in your head during meditation time <laughs> yeah. in the morning. Uh, real quick. You do have several albums out there. Yeah, You've yeah, got yeah. a comedy central presents. There's a Netflix special. The Netflix special uh, is now on Amazon. Just for, if you look okay. for it on Netflix, you won't find it there, but Amazon okay. has it. Cool. Uh, Mike, do you have any like shows coming up in the next couple of weeks you want to tell the people about? Uh, I would tell people 
if you're in the United Kingdom, go to my shows in London in July or in Edinburgh. I'll be at the Fringe Fest all through August. That's awesome. I love that, man. Congrats. And uh, what's your podcast again, just for those people that didn't uh, oh, yeah. don't remember? It's called Broccoli and Ice Cream. Broccoli and Ice Cream, guys. Guys, this has been Mike Kaplan. What a pleasure to talk to him today. Um, I'm Sweet T. And I'm Sweet P, guys. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Comics Table. Uh, you know, send us an email or a, a dick pic and uh, yeah, just, please. You know, let us know what you think about the podcast. And uh, that'd be great. And take care. And clean up after yourself. All right. Thanks. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.